Shabbat Shalom. I didn't, uh, I didn't time that song that way on purpose, but I kind of liked it. It was kind of got a little funk to it. Toby Mack, I just need you. That's what we need this, uh, this Sabbath, right? We need the Father. We need the Son. We need the Ruach HaKodesh. We need that re- rebirth inside ourselves. Everything's starting to rebirth outside. The weather sp- is starting to get nicer out there. I can't wait for spring. I can't wait for some tulips, but it's coming. It's all coming. And then, like every Oklahoma spring, we're going to get that last snow. Okay, I'll speak against that. We're going to nullify that in the day it was heard. Father, we speak against that last snow. Um, if you have not gotten your bulletin uh, on the welcome bar, please do. It uh, gives you a little bit of information on the readings for this week. Uh, Ephraim is going to be our main teacher this week. Daniel will be doing our first five, as well as on the back there's space for you to be able to take some notes along with that teaching. So uh, we are glad to have Daniel back. Uh, Daniel was on a cruise last week uh, for his anniversary, and uh, he assured me he only gained six pounds. So... Uh, um, now that we've, uh, we've disclosed, I mean, we are a fellowship of transparency, so I was just trying to be transparent with you. Um, we, need to, we need to rally around Daniel and help him get those six pounds back off. So um, every time you see Daniel today, just remind him that he can do this. You know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's going to need that when he's staring down a burrito later. So um, inside... Inside, we have information on our small groups. Small groups are getting ready to start. Um, If you have not found out any information on the small groups, please take a second to check that out and look at that information. There's a lot of different things with the small groups, and so there's something really for everybody to get involved with. Um, This is not something that, you know, if you have a flexible schedule or whatever and you can't commit to being there every single week right off the bat, that's okay. This is about having fellowship, studying the Word of God together, and growing together as a community. So uh, we have uh, a married couples small group uh, hosted by the Fosters. Um, anybody knows the Fosters, they're, they're a lot of fun. So uh, married couple, if you'd like to do a husband and wife small group, there's one for that. Um, for the single women, we have a, uh, a Bible study on in a small group on the book of Ruth uh, that will be taking place. Um, we have a group on the book of James, uh, one of my favorite apostles. Sorry, Chris Knight, you're not here to defend John. Um, and then we have an inductive Bible study uh, as well that's going to teach you how to study this scripture. So um, if that's an area that you struggle in, understanding how to put things together, how to go about uh, piecing together passages in the New Testament, Old Testament, stuff like that, um, this is a, a small group for you to get engaged, involved with uh, right away. Those are starting like right away. Like ne- Some of them, I believe, are starting next week. Um, if you happen to lose your bulletin, we also have a brand new HFF website. That's up at hebraicfamily.com. Has all the information, has an updated calendar. And so any information that you're looking for throughout the week, you can get it. It's definitely mobile friendly for those who are constantly on the go. And so um, we'd love to see you guys at some of these uh, some of these gatherings, get you involved in some of that. Uh, today we have a children's program. They're going to do a special craft. Um, I believe it's uh, something to do with Esther's crown. 
And so, uh, during the main message, after we do the blessing over the children, uh, there will be a children's craft uh, time that will be uh, down the hall for that. And the nursery will also be open. So, if you have a young one and you would like to uh, have them go to the nursery, and we'll have uh, some adult supervision in there to help them as well uh, and keep an eye on them throughout that time. Um, Purim was this week. Uh, so, we're now knee-deep in the cow to Pesach. So, while Purim is not a commanded feast of the Lord, it is definitely a time that we remember uh, Queen Esther and the, what the Lord did on behalf of the Hebrew people. And so, now we're counting down to Pesach. Um, I know some in the congregation, this will be their first formal uh, Passover gathering. Um, I want to remind you guys that at HFF, we don't take a specific calendar. So we don't take a stance and say like, oh, you have to do it on this day or you have to do it on that day. Um, I've been in the movement long enough to know that there's an awful lot of different thoughts on that. Our biggest uh, thing is that we want you to keep it. We want you to keep Passover. We want you to keep the feast. And so um, if you don't have a place to do that, we want to get you connected uh, with the family, get connected with the community state or something like that. We're not hosting one ourselves this year. Um, that is in the works for next year. Uh, but uh, we do want to make sure that you have a place to do that um, so that you can keep the feast. And any questions that you may have in regards to that as well. Um, a, lot of, a lot of years of experience inside the congregation on some of these things. So seek out one of the leadership and uh, we'll We'll answer whatever questions we can on that. Um, men's prayer breakfast is March 11th. Uh, so want to make everybody aware of that. If you guys like fellowship with guys in the morning, on a Sunday morning, great breakfast. Carlos, Joe, a lot of the guys get up super early, crack of dawn. They're in there making breakfast. Um, and then a time of prayer and fellowship after that. March 25th is going to be the ladies' prayer meeting. And um, one is in Norman, the men's is in Norman, the other one's in Moore, right around the corner. So um, please make plans to join us and get involved with that. And then I do also believe that um, they're putting together a ladies outing for March and for April. Uh, and so um, once we get more information on that, we'll obviously update the website and we'll update the uh, bulletin for you on that. Um, wanted to let you guys know that uh, there are some new faces here, um, that how we do tithes and offerings in here is that it's a part of worship. We don't do a separate time where we do, you know, an altar call and, hey, let's see who comes down and puts money and try to shame anybody. No. The, the gift that you give to the Lord is between you and the Lord. And so we incorporate that during the time of worship. Um, we believe that that's how the temple service was. And our goal is, even though we don't have a temple, our goal is to do our best in the modern context to incorporate those elements. And so you can do that during worship or you can also set those things up online uh, on the website and you don't even have to do it in here. Uh, none of the staff, none of them us uh, take any type of salary. It all goes back into the, um, the community store fund and we help widows and orphans and Compassion International and a whole lot of other things that we do uh, with that money. And so, um, uh, yeah, everybody having a good Shabbat so far? I know it's a mouthful. I speed through it every week just to make sure everybody's informed and then also give all the, all the families enough time to kind of funnel through the door, herd the cats in. You know, some of those cats are mine and get everybody in and get ready to go. But we're going to go ahead. We're going to take a second. Why don't you stand up and greet your neighbor next to you. Tell them a good hearty Shabbat Shalom. We're glad you're here with us. Then we're going to get into a time of prayer and we're going to get into a time of worship.
Shabbat. <laughs> Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. If I can get everybody to settle back down again. Okay. Sounds funny. <clears throat> you, you want me to walk in front of the speakers? No. Oh. Okay. All right. Before, as we get ready to, to worship, <clears throat> let's spend a couple of minutes. I'm going to let you get your hearts right with God. So I'm going to ask you to spend a, spend a couple of minutes alone with the Lord. Prepare your heart. Uh, that's what the scripture says we're supposed to do whenever we come to worship him. That we are to prepare our hearts. We're coming before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so uh, we need to make sure that our hearts are right with him. So when we praise him, that our praise is right. And it is uh, like incense that... Uh, going up to him that he will find very pleasing to, to him so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes here now to pray and then I'll close this in a couple of minutes
we pray for those that are leading us in our worship service this morning and ask that you would bless them. We ask that you would give the right words to say to those who are giving us the messages this morning. And, we, and I pray for each of us that we might open our ears and our hearts to hear you this morning and what you have to say to each of us. So we commit this time to you. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. guys will stand with us. For those who like to dance, there's space in the back and there's flags. But there's nothing greater than we can do throughout the week than to come together on the Sabbath day and to raise our voices to dance before the Lord and to proclaim that He is the Lord of all. It doesn't matter what you've gone through this week. It doesn't matter what giants are in your life. The Lord is larger than any of those giants. The Lord can take down anything if you'll allow Him to take it from you. And today we're going to come together and we're going to proclaim that He is the Lord of all. There are no giants in our lives that He cannot topple. There are no things that we cannot hand over to Him. And we know that if we do to Him, He can heal us. He can set us free. When he rolled up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder and his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. The Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. As he turned his barrels to me, so you better be believing. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. From heaven above with wisdom, power, love, our God is an awesome God. When the sky starts in the void of the night, our God is an awesome God. He's broken to the darkness and created the light, our God is an awesome God. And judgment and wrath, He poured out us life, mercy and grace, He gave us up to cross. I hope that we have not to. Our God is an awesome God. 
God. We worship an awesome God. We worship an awesome God. We worship an awesome God. Yahweh is an awesome God. Yahweh is a mighty God. We worship an awesome God. We worship an awesome God. When he rolled up his sleeves, the angels putting on the ribs. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder and his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. The Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of heat. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. It's returning to very soon, so you better be believed. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wings. like in the tabernacle. Father, we come through the outer courts with our praises to you. Father, our heart's anticipation today, Father, is to give you glory, to give you honor, to give you praise, to lift you higher than it. For Father, you are welcome in this place. Move freely in our midst, Father. As we lift you high, Father, for you are the honored one here, and you alone. For you are holy, for you are kadosh, kadosh. Blessed are you, Father, in this place.
For I praise it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you Oh, 
is fading the end draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise on Ten thousand years in there forever are far beyond our understanding our minds our minds try to understand you we try to understand how you think how you work how you process Father. our egos try to be you but we are not our minds are not capable of understanding all that you are for you were the one who breathed life into us So that we would give that breath of life back in praise daily. So that we would lift you high in our workplaces, Father. That we would lift you high in our relationships, Father. That we would lift you high in every step that we take, Father. That, Father, we would not even need to speak a word, but others would see you manifesting your love through us, Father. And Father, we fall short. We fall short more often, Father, than we do not. But Father, we will not give up. We will not wallow in pity. 
we will rise because it says father that we who put trust in you who puts our hope in you you will make us soar high on wings like eagles father this world america tells us that we can soar high on eagles through our own self but we know your word is true and we know father that only through you that we can be raised up on wings like eagles to soar and father there are some right now who are in the valleys father they could use to be raised up on the wings like the eagle father they could use for you to come and wrap your talit around them father to cover them in your prayer garment father father we ask and petition you humbly on their behalf father that you would surround them with your arms father and father you are everywhere at once you are everywhere so father we ask that they would feel your touch they would feel the breath of life that is you they would feel your presence near and that would give them an overwhelming sense of peace and whatever they're going through father to know that they are not alone that you have already gone before them and even though father we may not be able to see the end of the road even though, Father, we may not be able to see the outcome, we know that you have already gone there. You have already prepared a way for us. And wherever you tell us to go, if we will submit Shema and walk, Father, that there can be no wrong that will be done to us because you are perfection, Father. And so, Father, as you take us through these times, as you take us through this cleansing period, Father, you take us through this, this pressing period, Father, to lead us into your feast, Father to lead us into the celebration of the cycles of your holy days father may it not be rote may it not be routine for us father may we have not grown that haughty father to think that we can just waltz into your dining table father and sit with you before we are not worthy on our own merit father may we fall on our faces repent father seek your mercy seek your grace father so that we can be washed clean by the blood of the lamb to be able to sit with you at your table most holy king most gracious father father you are beyond the beauty that we see with our eyes father the flowers that are breaking forth you were beyond that, Father. You are the one who created it. How majestic is your name in all of the earth, Father. Yahweh Elohim, El Shaddai, El Gabor, the mighty God. Father, we need some breakthroughs. We need some healing. We need some deliverance, Father. We need some curses to be broken. the chain breaker so father we ask you know who they are father you have been watching them you have been right there and you say I am here my child but we're looking for we're looking for answers in the wrong places father turn our hearts and our eyes to you here with us father you have been all along 
And Father, we ask humbly before you that you would give those people breakthroughs. That the giants in their life would fall. Because Father, they are not bigger than you. But Father, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Father, it's time for us to put down our strength. up by yours. Father, teach us your ways that we may bring glory to you in all that we do. For it's in the name of Yeshua we humbly come before you on the Sabbath day. Amen and Amen. Mm, mm, mm. That song is one of my favorites. The reason is because it encapsulates the heart of David, when writing the Psalms, he says, Rise up, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within me. May I bless his holy name. What David is conveying there is, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It doesn't matter what my situation is. It doesn't matter if I don't feel like praising him. Rise up and praise him, O my soul. Spring up, O well. And bless his holy name. (sighs) All right, so let me put my former Pentecostal background back in my back pocket here. (sighs) But that song excites me. Because if I am truly to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, 10,000 reasons is nowhere near long enough a list. Because we will spend eternity with him, praising him. So let's get started now. Ah, this week. So in five minutes, it's nowhere near enough time to cover all the amazing points there are in this week's parish, okay? But I'm going to try my best to just limit myself to a couple points, all right? So um, we see in this week's parish, there are some awesome things that take place. First, it starts off uh, in Exodus chapter 30. We've seen uh, several things, but among them is the census that's taken. And in the census that's taken, it says uh, in chapter 30, verse 12, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to Adonai when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a contribution to Adonai. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to Adonai. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to Adonai to make atonement for yourselves. The important part here is that verse 15 says, The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less. Everyone has the same equal footing before him. Everyone is represented by that half shekel, no matter your status, no matter your position. Now, then as we skip forward here, we see that this is one of the most infamous parashahs, because in this, in chapter 32, we see... The golden calf incident. So what's happened here is Moshe is receiving these instructions here on Mount Sinai, Har Sinai. And in that moment, when he's on that mountain for 40 days, we become restless. We say, hmm, 
Where's this dude at? In fact, it says in chapter 32, Now when the people saw that Moshe delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aharon and said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moshe, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Wait, who brought him up out of the land of Egypt? Moshe did? We do not know what has become of him. Make us a God to go before us because this man who brought us up, we don't know what's become of him. How quickly we forget. It's not by the hand of man that these things have come about, but by his spirit. Now, we then see a very sad story about how Aharon tells all the people, bring me all your jewelry. And in that, then it says that he took all the jewelry and threw it into the fire and melted it down. And then it says in verse 4, he fashioned it with an engraving tool. In other words, he took a tool in his hand and made this calf. Okay? Then it says, later, of course, we know the rest of the story, Yehoshua, who is on the mountain with Moshe, somewhere. Now, we don't know. This is, this is one of the most interesting things about this story to me. Yehoshua was apart from all the people. Of course, he was Moshe's understudy, right? Moshe was his mentor. And Yehoshua, Joshua, finds himself somewhere on the mountain where he's separate from the people, but he's able to hear what's going on in the camp. And then he approaches Moshe. Now, how does all that happen? How does he gain passage out? It's all curious to me. That's one of the first questions I will probably ask when I get there. But somehow, Yehoshua hears what's going on and tells Moshe, and Moshe comes down, okay? And, and of course, we know what happens. The tablets are thrown down. The ketubah is broken, which needs to be renewed. And what happens is then, Moshe says to Aharon, what did you do? And Aharon says, oh, I, I just, uh, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Forget the, ch hide the chisel that I was using. Out came this calf. Now, prior, that's in verse 24. In verse 22, we actually see Aharon try to throw the people under the bus. Okay? They made me do it. Um, Aharon, do you not know the story of Adam? The woman made me do it. The blame game doesn't work. Bruh, we need to take personal responsibility for our own actions. Now, then we see what happens, of course, is that Moshe takes the, the golden calf and he then grinds it into a powder and he throws it into the water and he requires all the people to drink. Now, Bill Cloud has an awesome teaching on this where he relates when they drank the, the water with the, the powder of the golden calf and the physical response that the, the people would have had had they truly committed adultery in their hearts was uh, equivalent to the, the man who accuses his wife of adultery and he brings her to the high priest and the high priest takes a parchment and writes ink and takes some of the dirt of the tabernacle 
chocolate floor, puts it in a cup, and she drinks of it, and then she has a physical response. It, there's an awesome connection that's there. I, I encourage you to go look that up on YouTube or, or something where Bill Cloud teaches on that. It's awesome. Um, but we see that what happens is Moshe issues a, 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 a challenge. All those who are faithful to Adonai, come to me. And all the Levites respond. And he tells them, take out your sword and go among the people. And do not discriminate if it's your brother, if it's your family member. If they are to die, you will put, put them to the sword. Now, if you look at that teaching from Bill Cloud, you'll understand that it wasn't something that was indiscriminate. They just didn't go through swinging a sword and whoever happened to be in the way, they killed. I'm of the opinion that Bill comes to the right conclusion that these people had a physical reaction to what they drank and thus they were easily identified and it wasn't indiscriminate. But the whole point is 3,000 men died that day. Now, there are, and this is a very sad story, now, we also understand that this took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, this was all about the giving of the Torah. And then we look forward a couple thousand years. And we see another time. This one happens to be in the temple. On the anniversary of the giving of the Torah. In which 3,000 souls are added to the kingdom. In Acts chapter 2. Not by coincidence. There are three things that I believe that we can take away from this. Now, there are many things that we can take away from this parish, but three things I'd like to highlight. Number one, as mentioned, we all stand on equal footing before him. At the end, when we stand before him, whenever that time comes, it won't matter how much money we've made. It won't matter how much prestige we have. It won't matter how important we are. It doesn't matter if we're successful or unsuccessful by the world's standards. We will all be on equal footing. We will all stand before Him. And at that time, everything will be burned up. And we'll either have gold, silver, and precious jewels. Or we'll have hay and stubble that will burn up and have nothing left over. So we all stand on equal footing before him. The question is, as we see numerous times from the Messiah, what are we doing with the talents that he's given us? Now, for some of us, it's easy to come up here and speak in front of other people. For others of you, the mere thought of doing so makes you break out into cold sweats. For some of us, coming up here and singing beautiful songs before the Lord and leading people in worship is where we're gifted. For, other, for others of us, we're tone deaf. It doesn't matter what your gift is. What matters is how you're using your gift to glorify Him. Because in the end, that's where we'll be measured. We all stand on the equal ground. The question is, how are we being good stewards with what he's given us? Second thing we can take away from this. We, and I say we so we don't point fingers because it's truly us. 
we demanded an idol. We demanded something tangible. Why? Because of our impatience. Now, most of us don't have physical idols in our lives. Okay? Um, I was approached by many uh, merchants this past week trying to sell me idols on vacation. Okay? No, thank you. I don't want a physical idol. But what other idols have I established in my life? What other idols have I willingly fashioned with a tool in my own life and erected to a place of exaltation that's taking the place of him who belongs there? May we all be spiritually fervent enough to crush those idols and grind them into powder that they may be disposed of. Third, we need to be like the Levites, willing to sacrifice everything in order to maintain purity. We need to be in a position we are willing to make sure that there's nothing attached to us in our lives that is preventing us from being holy before Him and be willing to cut that off. So let's keep these things in mind as we live in a world that wants to offer us idols, that wants to draw us into other things so that we are worshiping those things instead of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the examples that are given, even exposing our weaknesses in an embarrassing fashion. Yet we know it's there to encourage us, to strive us, to, gr- to prod us to grow. So Father, we submit to you. We pray that you would help us to remove those idols from our lives. That you would help us to sacrifice anything that is keeping us from you. And may we be good stewards with all that you've blessed us with. Father, we surrender our lives to you this day. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. Now, let's have the children come up for the blessing. Ooh, looks like a tie. So eloquent Daniel gave me the mic. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the many blessings that we have to account for, Father, and, and in particular, Father, our kids. Um, they're such a blessing, Father, and it was so wonderful to look at them, Father, and even remember ourselves, Father, just remember the, the adventures, the joy, and just the, the pleasure of being a child, Father. So help us to, to cultivate that in them, Father, in ways that honors your kingdom. We thank you so much, Father, and may each child here, Father, be just a building block and a keystone. Well, we have a cornerstone, Yeshua, but we thank you so much, Father. May they be built up in your house, Father, and, and be establishing your goodness, Father, and being lights and, and vessels of, of mercy, Father, to the world. 
We thank you, Father. We just want to speak words of life over them. Father, help us in the ways that we fall short as parents and as leaders. And we, Father, we ask that you would be, Father, um, our example, that we might be examples to them. We praise you now in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Kids are dismissed to their class as well as the nurseries open as well. So uh, littles three and under can go to the nursery. Four through 12 can go through to the kids class. Hope they have a wonderful time. Now we can talk about some adult stuff. No, I'm just kidding. We are a visual people. We see with our eyes everything that we see in the world, everything we observe around us. If I were to ask you if you had to give up one of your five senses, probably one of the first initial things you might think is, all right, well, I'm going to keep my sight. Let's figure out the other four. However, if you do think about that question maybe a little bit more, you you might reconsider when we know that food doesn't taste very good if it's bland and we Faith faith comes by hearing the word of the Lord. So if you could still hear, that might be good. Maybe sight might actually move further down the list. Regardless, we are a visual people. The children of Israel asked for an idol, an image that they could see. Give us, make us a God that we can see. We're visual people. We have our eyes open when we're awake, our eyes are awake. Except when our eyes are closed at night, sometimes we're almost closer to God. We're a visual people. It starts young. Kids love, the second the kid gets a pencil in their hand and a piece of paper and they figure out that when they touch that pencil to the paper and they make a line, they're like, (gasps) and then they have to keep going and drawing and creating something. That's why we put on the back of the bulletin, you got that little space for the kids to draw because every kid in the history of time in Sunday church in a pew had needed something to draw. Little donation card and a golf pencil never did the trick. We need something, it starts young, that we need to put put something down, something visual. How many of you have heard the phrase before, I won't believe it till I see it? All the time. Won't believe it till I see it. The modern day equivalent of that is on social media, it's pics or it didn't happen. Where you say, somebody says, oh my gosh, this happened. It's all like, well, take a picture and put it on there. It didn't happen if you can't see the picture. I won't believe it till I see it. But then we also have another very common phrase. Tell me if you've heard this one. Your eyes can be deceiving. So how do you reconcile those two things? I won't believe it till I see it. Oh, but your eyes can be deceiving. Well, then how do you establish any kind of truth between those two very, very common phrases? You need a second witness. You need something, some sort of confirmation of truth. That's where we need, that's where our eyes can only be one witness. We need some sort of confirmation, confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Because our eyes can be deceiving, but however, sometimes we just won't get it until we see it. Because we all have a little bit of a doubting Thomas in us. Until you saw the scars, until you felt the scar in his side, wouldn't believe. We all have a little bit of that in us. 
When we're talking about the image of God, that's what I want to talk about today. Because we are made in his image. You know, the thing that we, we can see. So if we're going to talk about this subject, then we got to go back to the garden. We got to go back to Genesis 1. Start from the beginning, because this is kind of a broad subject. There's not, I'm not going to be able to touch on everything that this subject has to offer, but I'm going to share a couple of things that's been on my heart, been on my mind lately. If you go back to Genesis 1, starting at verse 26, this is on the sixth day of creation, and God said this, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We have an image of God. He says right here, he created man in his image, the image of God. That phrase in the Hebrew, image of God, or in the image of God, is in the Hebrew, it's Betzalem Elohim. Betzalem Elohim. Bet means in, when it's for a word. Tzalem means image, and Elohim is, of course, God. That word Tzalem also means, in lots of other parts of Scripture, an idol, or some sort of image of a God. Now, as I said that, and as I say that quickly, Betzalem Elohim you might think of something else, something else that happened in our Torah portion this week. Some other word, some other name comes to mind. Do you know what that name is? Betzalel, the craftsman of the tabernacle. The one who was called by God to create the articles and elements of the tabernacle. Betzalel. The first three letters of Betzalem a bet, a tzade, and a lamed is the first three letters of his name. And then Elohim, the second word, the first two letters, Aleph, Lamed, is the last two letters of his name. His name is an abbreviation of, in the image of God, Betzalel. His name literally means in the shadow of God. That makes sense. I just said his name was an abbreviation of the image of God, so his name represents a shadow that very small, that small Hebrew word, zal, atzare, and elamed, elamed means shadow. And that's part of tzalem, which is an image. So you kind of break down the Hebrew and you get different meanings out of these things. So Betzalel, the shadow of God, was commanded to craft and create the articles that filled the tabernacle, what we're talking about in all of our Torah portions. Next week, we've been talking about it before. And he was to create these things that were patterned after what he saw in heaven. Now here's something that's interesting. Ancient temples, ancient civilizations, ancient pagans who worshipped other gods, when they created a temple to that god, there was one thing that was the pinnacle of that creation that they, that they made. 
It was the statue or the image of their God. If you were to go and see some ancient pagan temple, you'd walk past, oh, there's this here, there's that there, oh, that's kind of interesting there. You'd come into the big room of the temple and boom, right in your face is a statue or an image of that God. Had a face, had a body, arms, whatever, whatever sort of fanciful creation that somebody created out of their mind and they carve it out of wood or stone and you'd be hit in the face by the image of the God. It was like the pinnacle of if you were going to go to that temple. Something that's very different about the worship of Adonai, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is in his temple, in his tabernacle, there was not an image of the God. The God that resided in that temple where you were to go and worship him, there's not an image of the God. There's these other gold articles. There's a menorah. There's a table of showbread. There's an ark that he, and a mercy seat that his glory is above. However, there's no image. This would have been a shock to ancient civilizations. When the Babylonians sacked the first temple, the temple of Solomon, and they went in there. Now, when, actually, when Solomon built the temple, you might not know this, there was actually in the sanctuary, there was like 11 menorahs and 11 tables of showbread. They kind of went all out when it came time to make the temple. The tabernacle was a little bit smaller. When Solomon got a chance to do it, man, they went all out on those various articles and elements of the tabernacle. So picture this. Okay, this might sound a little weird, but, but, but just go with me on this for a little bit. The Babylonians are getting ready to go sack Jerusalem. They're going to go destroy the temple. They're going to take the Israelites captive. And they're going to go conquer what they believe they're conquering the God of Israel. So a couple of guys probably got together and they say, you know what? We're going to go in. We're going to go storming into their temple. And we're going to prove that our gods are greater than their God. Can you imagine this? They would go in and they're like, all right, we've never seen this temple. Also, nobody had a copy of the, their copy of the King James in there. So they didn't read, you know, what's in the temple in the Torah. They didn't know in ancient times. Babylonian soldiers come marching in. They kick in the door and they see all these gold articles or something like, oh, okay, what's, what's all this? Oh man, look at all that gold, everything there. Okay, there's a veil with two cherubim angels that are stitched into the veil. And then they're like, oh my gosh, they had it's behind a veil. Can you imagine what this God might look like? So they run and they go and they run and they rip the curtain open and they look and they're like, They were probably expecting some sort of image of this God. Who is this God of the, of the Hebrews? What does this God look like? He claims to be the one true God, all-powerful God. What does he look like? It's nothing in there but a box. I already saw a ton of gold. There's a ton of, what's a gold box? Okay, I've already seen a ton of gold. I'm not surprised by the gold. I see two angels on top of the box. I saw those. Those were stitched into the veil. Where is the God? That's what they would have asked. It would have been a shock to them because this is unlike anything that would have been in ancient times. There was no image of Adonai, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, in his temple. When we go back to our passage here and it says that God created man in his image. 
And then what it goes after and what it explains is that then God gives man a purpose and a function and he says, tend my garden. In ancient times, in ancient civilizations, mythology, they think that men were created to be slaves to the gods. Where there's mortals and there's immortals, we're mortals and we are nothing but slaves to the gods that we serve. That's what they would say. But our God, the one true God, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, created us and gave us a function, gave us a purpose. We tend the garden. He created us to be in his image, to have a function, to have domain. He's given us domain over his kingdom, over his house. What an amazing honor that is. There's no other story in, ancient, in the ancient world where some God spoke to mortal man and gave him such power and such responsibility. Now, they, now ancient civilizations believe that kings would rise to a level of divinity and godhood. So when there was a king that was made to rule over more slaves in a kingdom, well, then he was given God status. But otherwise, not everybody was allowed divine status or dominion over the kingdom created by God. He created man, wanted him in his house to be a spouse to him, to be in a marriage, in a covenant with him between God and with man. What an amazing honor that is. That's what he desired to be. Every other God, and, and actually men do this as well, there's stories in, a, in the ancient world where kings would be established, a new king would rise up, and then one of the, part, the process of the, of the uh, coronation, the kingship, the enthronement of the king was that there'd be, you know, celebrations and feasts, and oftentimes there would be a setting up of an image of the king, he would be, there would be an image of the king set up because the king or the ruler had reached God's status. And so then they would make a statue or an idol of that person. So that then we could recognize, man, look at that king. I knew him once as a man, now he's got a giant statue of himself. And they would set up an image. And now modern day, dictators still do this. Some rulers of other nations, you'd see a new president or a new uh, ruler rise up. And then what do you see on the sides of the buildings? See their face, plaster on the buildings, propaganda. Sometimes they even mint new currency and new coins with the face of the king, of the ruler, because this king supposedly has achieved God status. And I think some of those traditions of ancient times has carried over to modern day as well. So when a king would create something, he would establish his kingdom, he'd be made to rule over a kingdom, an image of him would be set up. It's actually an interesting parallel that when God created the world... In seven days, on day six, it says literally in our scripture that God made an image of himself on day six. Let's take a little sidebar here for a little minute. How many of us have heard the phrase, you are what you eat? I've never really understood that exactly, honestly. Because, I mean, I like, I mean, I like uh, cheeseburgers, lettuce, tomato, pickle. Jalapenos, lettuce, tomato, you know, mustard, ketchup. Oh, so good. I've never heard anybody besides my wife describe me, describe me as hot and juicy and delicious. 
So I've never quite understood that phrase. But let me, quite, let me clarify that a little bit. It's a, figure, it's a figure of speech. Because you eat something that's loaded with sugar and with fat, and then you and your body, then figuratively in you, you will have lots of fat and sugar in your body. Let me actually say a phrase that actually encompasses that more and kind of explains it, but is actually more applicable. You are what you worship. See, if you have an unhealthy love for food and you eat too much of it, then you'll have too much of that in you and then you kind of become, you become fat and bloated and greasy and all those things that you, food, kind of the negative description of food. So if you worship your food, well, then that's when you kind of become that. But let's expand on that. You are what you worship. Actually, I got to admit, I stole this from Ryan White. He'll be here next week. And so if he says this again, you heard it first from me, but it originally came from him. So he gets the credit. He said this, after the sin of the golden calf, that is when God called the children of Israel stiff-necked. This stiff-necked people, I will not go with them into the promised land. What else is stiff-necked? A molten statue golden calf is stiff-necked. Can't move. Can't turn its head. So then God turns to the people and said, you are stiff-necked. We can take that a step further. If you worship some other God that is, whose image is a statue, then you spiritually become just as deaf and dumb as that pile of rocks. You can't see, you can't hear, you can't taste, you can't feel, you're not alive, you're as dead as an inanimate object, if that is who you worship. You are what you worship. If that's what you choose to worship, then that's who you are. That's what you are. You want to get real personal here? If you spend way too much time on social media, you know what you are? You're, you have no substance to any sort of social life. You have no interaction with other people and you just spend all that time and you might as well be a bunch of ones and zeros floating through a computer because you're not alive and interacting with people. You physically, in your life, in your personal life and personal relationships, you might as well be dead. You're like a computer program. People can just boot you up and shut you down whenever. You are what you worship. This is why idolatry is such an abomination to God. That's why when, when the, basically the second commandment of the Ten Commandments is make no graven image. Because this idolatry thing is actually pretty, pretty specific here. You make a, a graven image to replace and to say, this is God, this is Elohim. When in truth of fact, God made you in his image. Made us in his image. If you choose to worship something else, some other idol, some other image that is not God, then you are rejecting what God did make. Your, yourself, your being, your, your, you, because you have to submit who you are to that other thing. You are rejecting the image of God. If you choose to worship something that was made by man. Here's another sin. We talk about the sin of the garden where we ate the fruit that we weren't supposed to eat. And that's, uh, I mean, you know, 
pointing fingers, who did what, and it was the woman, it was the man, you know, all those sort of things. You know what else was a sin? When they realized that they were naked, they finally got a new image of themselves, and then they took fig leaves, and they covered themselves up. God comes to find his creation, his image that he made, and he finds somebody that covered the image of God. Covered it up. Put blinders over it so somebody couldn't see. It is also a sin to cover the image of God. Now, that's not saying that I'm going to go out running. Let's go streaking through the quad. No, that's not what I'm saying. But back in the garden, they covered the image of God. God walks up to Adam and Adam's sitting there and he's he's covered up with fig leaves. It's like, what are you doing? I made you in my image and you're going to cover that up? Get out. So he did. Now, if he's like, if you want to cover it up, well, I'm going to give you something better to cover it. Here, I'm going to kill this animal. You know, the ones you were supposed to tend to. We're going to kill this animal. We're going to give its hide to you. You want to cover it up? There you go. Wear that instead. Those fig leaves are falling off anyways. That's what happened. They covered the image of God. When Adam was kicked out of the presence of God, kicked out of his presence, because then he, it says in Genesis chapter 6, when, then he, when he begot Seth and he begot other children, and then it says there in chapter 6, let me go ahead and read there so I'm not saying any specific phrasing. Sorry, chapter 5, the genealogy of Adam. In the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created male and female. He blessed them, called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. He was kicked out of the garden. So then his son that he bared was then made in his image, not in the image of God. Now, there's a lot of different debate on this. When we say that we are made in the image of God, does that mean that we are the image bearers of God or we are literally the image of God? My answer is yes. Because we bear the image of God because God created us and that's something you can't ever like, take away, that he has put his image upon us. But when you are outside of the presence of God, you no longer represent God. So you bear his image, but you are not the image of God. So when he begat Seth outside of the garden, Seth was made in Adam's image. This is what I think. This is, this is where this might be a little bit of debate on between, as we're talking about this. Are we image bearers of God or are we the image of God? So this is what I think. When you are in the presence of God, when you are when you have spiritually gone into the sanctuary, into the temple with the menorah, and you're praying before the Lord as the incense rose on the golden altar of incense, and the table of showbread is there, and the glory of the Lord is behind the veil on top of the mercy seat. When you are in there, then the image of God is present. You are the image of God. You might say, well, there's no image in that temple. Well, when you, the image of God, are in God's presence, doing what he wants you to do because he wants to dwell with us, he wants us to be in his presence, then you are the image of God. 
When you're outside of the presence of God, we still bear his image. Let me play, you know, fast and loose with the definition of bear because you bear a burden on your shoulders. And when you are bearing something upon you, then what you can do is you can lift it off and share it with someone else. So if we bear the image of God, then when we go to someone else and speak to somebody else and minister to them, then we can share with them the image of God. So that then we can bring them back and bring them then in and teach them about how to be in the presence of God so they can be true images of God. When the image of God is in his presence, in the temple, then the image of God is present there. Let's go into the first century here. When Yeshua died, hanging on the cross... What do you think they would have said back in those days? The Romans, all the other foreigners or whatever, and they saw the temple, Herod's temple. This was the second one. And then they saw that, and you could stand on the Mount of Olives, and when the doors were open, you could see into the temple, but there was a veil. And so you couldn't see beyond the veil, and people knew about the veil. There was more instruction then, and you could, actually, and you could truly see it. You could see that there was a veil there. And I bet some foreigner stood up there and said, you know what, if that veil was ever torn in two, we would be able to see the image of this God of the Hebrews, yod heh vav heh. If that veil was torn in two, we could see the image of God. So you know what happened? I think truer words are never spoken. When Yeshua dies and is crucified and the earth quakes and the veil rents and it's torn in two, they saw the image of God. He just so happened to be hanging on a tree and had been punished for the sins that we had committed, that man had committed that the image of God had committed. That veil was torn in two. And so then somebody who may have believed that, hey, when that veil's torn in two, we would see the image of God. The veil's torn in two. I can't see anything behind the veil. Where's the image? There it is. When somebody said, hey, how, how, how do you look inside the temple? Oh, go up there to the, uh, to the base of that dead fig tree up there. And then if you stand at the base of that dead fig tree and then look then you can see into the temple and you can see the image. Because this is what I believe that Yeshua is doing and is in the, pro- in the process of doing. He's in the process of teaching us and bringing us back to the presence of God. He gives us the example to follow. That if we do as he does, then we would then be, it would be acceptable for us to go back into the presence of God. His work in the New Testament was all to make restitution and restoration for the past sins that have been committed. I said this already before once, I didn't, I didn't elaborate on one particular detail, that the, whole, the original sin takes place at a tree, at a fruit tree, where a piece of fruit was eaten. And then Yeshua died on a tree and his death and his sacrifice at that place that he returned back to the place of the breach that his death was to make atonement and restoration for the original sin that took place at a tree. Not only that, is my personal opinion here, they made fig leaves right after they ate the fruit. I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree. Piece of fruit, you can pluck it off the tree, you can eat it right off the tree. They made fig leaves right there. Didn't say they went back to the garden and found a fig tree and made fig leaves. No, it said they made fig leaves to cover themselves. 
go to the New Testament, Yeshua is walking into Jerusalem from Bethany across the Mount of Olives, which we believe he was crucified on the Mount of Olives, and he curses a fig tree, and the branches all completely wither. And then he walked away, and people have asked for centuries, what is the thing about cursing the fig tree? Well, Roman crucifixion always took place in a public place along a road. So he was on the Mount of Olives along a road, cursed a fig tree. And then when he's going to be crucified, the Romans are looking for an execution stake. How about this big fig tree with all the branches are all withered in a public place? Can you imagine that if if Yeshua's sacrifice took place on a fig tree and the same kind of tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Don't know for sure. I'll make a bet with you. We'll find out in the kingdom. I'll owe you a steak dinner if I'm wrong. If you want to take that bet. Of course, then, if you make me a steak dinner, I think we'll fellowship. That'd be good. I think everybody will take that bet. That he returned to the place of the breach to make atonement for that sin. Did it again as well. Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How many was it that were saved that day that the Spirit fell upon them? 3,000. How many died at the sin of the golden calf? 3,000. He's in the process of restoring and making atonement for those sins. He's restoring his image. But the enemy continues to try and tear us down any way possible. Any way that he can. Today's society, we have no value for human life whatsoever. None. I read there was a quote in uh, Dina Dye's new book. The quote was too good to not share. That she quotes from a, it was a Catholic minister who started up a program and a ministry in New Orleans that provides housing and homes for people who are victims of human trafficking. So that they help and minister to those people who have been rescued from human trafficking. And that person has said that human life, as far as society is concerned, has turned into a matter of profit, pleasure, and possession, and human life is nothing more than a commodity to society today. Profit, pleasure, and possession. We're talking about the image of God. We're talking about every single person that was fearfully and wonderfully made, and this is what society thinks of it. Personally, we make these decisions all the time. We're called to be a holy people because we're representatives of God. So anybody, that's why it says in the scripture, and this is why I believe it, those that go and get tattoos and mark their body up like the nations do. Who who are you assigning your body and your image and your allegiance to when you're marking your body with something? Because most of it, especially in ancient times, was to, they marked criminals with tattoos, so you knew who was a criminal. You marked slaves, so you knew who was a slave. They branded people to mark them as slaves. And what do we do today? In every piercing and tattoo shop, we mark ourselves with whatever we want, whatever affiliation we want to make. Popular amongst African-American fraternities, they go and brand themselves. What? Why would you attach yourself with an identifying mark to anything other than the one who created you? If you want to you assign, assign your allegiance to something, assign yourself to the creator of heaven and earth. Like I said, we're a visual people. 
we see these marks and these signs and then we attach ourselves to, to something or we, our eyes go following after it. If you want to see the image of God, look in the mirror. Now, we don't all look the same. Generation after generation after generation of our ancestors make us kind of look a little bit different. Generation after generation of people who have been in and out of the presence of God kind of make us who we are. But we're still still image bearers of the Most High. And when we are in the presence of God and when we're doing what God has called us to do and we help the poor and the needy and we lift them up as Yeshua did, then what do you do when you look in the mirror after you've done something amazing to help somebody? You look in the mirror and you see something different. You see the image of the one who helps the needy, who helps the poor. You can look in the mirror and you can see the image of God. And that's what we should see in everyone, in all of us, when we look in each other in the face, in the eyes. We should see a child of the Most High God, one of the sons or the daughters of the living God. See, because that's who we worship. We don't worship a statue. We worship the one true, the almighty, the ever-living God. So if we are what we worship, then we are alive. And that's why we are alive. Something I want to quote to you. Very interesting from the second book of Enoch. Earlier this week, I only knew of the one, so I didn't know there was two. (laughs) But what it is, is it's some sort of writing that came somewhere in the first century that we don't know who wrote it or whatever. So with all those extra biblical texts, you glean from what, what you will, separate the wheat and the chaff, but I find it very interesting. This was the, the opinion of somebody, so it carries the same weight as, you know, any teacher who writes an article and puts it on the internet. You know, somebody wrote an article and wrote a book. Second book of Enoch said this about the image of God. The Lord, with his own two hands, created mankind. And in a facsimile of his own face, small and great, the Lord created Whoever insults a person's face insults the face of the Lord. Whoever treats a person's face with repugnance treats the face of the Lord with repugnance. Whoever treats with contempt the face of any person treats the face of the Lord with contempt. There is anger and judgment for whoever spits on a person's face. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was an amazing personification of why we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Because every face of every person, now we can debate on, you know, he created with his own two hands or it's an exact facsimile of his own face. I like the part where it says small and great, just like the census that was taken. Doesn't matter if you're poor, rich, small, or great. We're all children of the most high God. But do we do that when we look in the face of our brother? Do we, or do we still insult one another? Do we still treat each other poorly? Unfortunately, we do. But if we were to look at everybody and remember and believe and think, we are all image bearers of the most high God. Then we would act and we would do and we would help our neighbor who is struggling. Those that are poor, in need, hungry, clothe the naked. Because when we do that, we do as Yeshua would do. And we would 
bring ourselves back or closer to the presence of God. Because God does want an image in his tabernacle and in his temple. And that image is the image he created and he wants to dwell with that image. Now obviously I couldn't have a message about the most high, the, the image of the invisible God without going to Colossians chapter one. So let me remind you of what's there. Starting at verse nine. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened and with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins." Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Yeshua is the image of the invisible God. And we are called by, called in verse after verse after verse to pattern ourselves like him. So that we too, with him, with the inheritance of the kingdom, can be the image of God. Every person who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they pray and when they do the work that God has called them to do, then they are the image of the true God. And when we go and we minister to people, now not everybody believes. The ones that you talk and you say, do you believe in God? I'll believe in him when I see him. They want to see something. They want to see a miracle. They're like, I, I will believe it when I see it. Well, when you go and you help somebody or you see somebody do a good deed, that's when you see the image of God. That's when you see God's works on this earth. And you may have heard it before. Some people, some people, times there's an atheist or there's somebody that doesn't really believe in God. But when they see somebody doing something for somebody, going the extra mile, helping somebody that they didn't, they were not asked to help them, but they did it anyways. And they look and they're like, they're taken aback because they were like, what is that? I live in a society where people don't help other people. There's no value to, to human life. You didn't earn anything. You're not paid because to do that work. But when they see somebody doing it from a willing heart and doing it out of the goodness and the morality of what they know and what they've learned about their creator, then somebody has to take notice. 
And that's when they see the image of God. I'll believe it when I see it. So look in the mirror. And when you do the work that God has called us to do, then others will see you do that work. And they too will see the image of God. The only reason why the image of God is not seen is because the image bearers are not making him seen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us in all things that we do. As you teach us and encourage us and strengthen us, Father, as we read your word, Father, I pray that we would be blessed, that we would be encouraged and filled with your wisdom and with your spirit. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to be your image bearers, to do what needs to be done when we see it, to when somebody reaches out in need, that we turn and help them without fail and without hesitation so that we can show them and show the world and be a light to the nations that the image of God, the creator of heaven and earth, is alive today. We don't have a temple anymore, Father, where we can go into your presence, but Father, you have given us spiritually inside of us a sanctuary and a dwelling place, and you have asked us to have a clean, hand, clean hands and a pure heart for you to dwell within, within us. And we can spiritually go into your presence. And at that time, Father, we are dwelling together and your image is present in your sanctuary. So Father, I pray that you would make a way for that to be the case. For us to go into your presence, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of Yeshua. That by his sacrifice, we can come into your throne room. Into your presence. And Father, I pray that we would have, take every opportunity and every example to teach and share your word and your image with those that so desperately need it. So Father, I pray that we would look in the mirror and we would then realize what we need to do to serve you, to follow your commandments, to walk uprightly before you, to live as Yeshua lived. Because when we do that, we are your image that can be seen by all who wish to see it. So we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for this time, this fellowship together. We pray all of these things. It's in your son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke into Moshe and said, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you shall bless the children. Of Yisrael. Of Yisrael. Of Yisrael. <speaking in Hebrew> Yisah Adonai 
Banahavilecha Vayasihim lecha Lecha Shalom 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 May the Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face to shine upon you And be gracious to you May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom. Instead of building more walls, yeah. let's build more bridges. Yeah. Let's build more bridges. Yeah.